1: It's been a difficult decade for Latin America as a whole. Uh, economies have been going sideways or down. Um, democracy has been backsliding in many countries. And, you know, for me, the the biggest challenge, I say this as someone who has been watching Latin American politics for more than 20 years, uh, who has seen these countries enjoy periods of success, Uh, real success, talking mainly about the 2000s, with the growth of the middle class and democracies that were moving in the other direction that were getting better. I know that progress is possible. I've seen it. And when it happens, it's usually because institutions and the rule of law are strong.
2: I'm Serafine Danani, Legal Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 7th, 2023. On January 1, 2023, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was sworn in as president of Brazil. A week later, insurrectionists in Brazil stormed government buildings, including the president's palace, the Supreme Federal Court, and the National Congress building to violently disrupt the democratic transition of power and challenge the results of the election. Lula, however, remained undeterred and forged ahead. It's been roughly 150 days since those events, and I invited Brian Winter, editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly and a journalist with over a decade of experience living and reporting across Latin America, back on the Lawfare podcast to discuss how Lula has fared in his first 100 days in office, his vision for reviving Brazil's place in the world, and the political forces he's up against. It's the Lawfare podcast, June 7th, how is Lula doing? So we had you back, uh, I think, in November and then even before then in September when Lula was running for president of Brazil. And then in November, he had just won the election. At the time, you shared your predictions on what Lula's first 100 days in office would look like. And it's been about roughly 150 days since Lula took office. And I'm wondering what ended up coming to surface? Were there there any surprises in the last 100 days or any curveballs that you didn't expect?
1: Well, it it seems like it's been 300 days as opposed to 150 because there's been so much action. Brazil is rarely boring. Lula, whatever you think of him, is a leader who uh, is always out there mixing things up in an active way and so far i would say that you know when you're in brazil as i was fairly recently what you sense is in certain quarters is a degree of normalcy that has returned after the tension of the jair bolsonaro years you know, a lot of the things that we were worried about uh, during the Bolsonaro years, mainly the integrity of Brazil's democracy, those concerns are not gone. But Lula has managed to bring a degree of institutional calm that we, we really didn't see uh, during the Bolsonaro administration. Some of those worries about Brazil's democracy have been replaced by concerns about the economy under Lula's watch. About Brazil's place in the world, um, particularly his comments on Ukraine and Russia, drew a lot of attention all around the world in recent weeks. There are some concerns about uh, stewardship of the Amazon as well. But, you know, these kind of existential questions that we were asking ourselves about the future of Brazil's democracy, whether it would remain intact, those seem to have dissipated somewhat uh, during this time.
2: So let's take some of these issues in turn. Let's start with the economy. What is happening in Brazil and how is Lula responding?
1: Well, if you talk to people in the business community in Brazil, uh, they're pretty negative. Um, you know, Lula has come back in and you know, really reemphasized the state's role in the economy in a way that the private sector doesn't generally like. Uh, Brazil is a country that by Latin American standards, it already has one of the biggest, most active states of any uh, any country in the region. Taxes are very high. Regulations are, are very complex. And, you know, those are things that the private sector doesn't usually like at the same time the global economy has changed in a way that's actually somewhat positive for Brazil there's clear demand for Brazil's uh, commodities in particular there has also been some signs of life in the agribusiness sector and as a result economists and others are currently ratcheting up their growth forecasts for Brazil for this year the latest expectation in this weekly survey that the Brazilian central bank takes they now expect growth this year of about 1.7%. That's up from 1% just a month ago. N- neither of these are great figures, but you know, it's above the trend that we've seen in Brazil in recent years. So I'd say, you know, a mixed picture with some grumbling from the private sector, but an external environment that uh, seems to be pushing the country in in a more positive direction anyway.
2: The reason I also wanted to invite you on this podcast at this point is because of the second item that you mentioned, which is Brazil is also tackling some questions about its place in the world. So why don't we start with the the war in Ukraine? Lula is adamant on keeping Brazil neutral, but in the process, he seems to be playing footsie with Russia, much to the U.S.'s chagrin. So what's motivating that?
1: Well, I think that there's a strategic motivation for Brazil on this one and a personal motivation for Lula. And these things mixed together, but it's best to talk about them separately. The strategic motivation is... You know, Brazilian foreign policy thinkers, uh, including Celso Amorim, who is Lula's top foreign policy advisor, was also his, effectively his, the most important person on foreign policy during Lula's first presidency from 2003 to 2010. This group of people really believe that a multipolar world in which there are several different powers competing for prominence is a better world for Brazil that this shift from a U.S. dominated so-called hegemonic world order that we've seen for the last, at least the last 30 years, uh, that it's been okay for Brazil, but that Brazil as a large country, as a large economy would benefit from a relative weakening of the United States and the rise of other countries, um, including those of the global South, like Brazil, India, China, but also potentially Russia. Is sometimes included in that group. Of course, Brazil is a member, a charter member of the BRICS, uh, which is that group that's been around for 20 years. Um, that also includes uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And you know, that's a point of view that you can be in favor of. That reasonable people can disagree. But that's that's the way they see things personally, at a personal level. You know, Lula believes that he is writing the final chapter of his biography, and it is a long, epic biography. This is a guy who has been at center stage in Brazilian politics for more than 40 years now. And you have to remember that the previous chapter was one of disgrace, where he uh, went to jail on corruption charges that were then later thrown out. Um, And he has now kind of staged this triumphant return to the presidency. Uh, But he still feels the pressure of those nearly two years that he was in jail. He knows that that is a, a stain on his story. So he is determined to make this final chapter as good as it can be. And at some point, either he convinced himself or someone convinced him that mediating peace in Ukraine was part of the way to write this amazing final chapter that would make people forget at least somewhat what happened before. Now, where Lula has gotten into trouble on this is when he doesn't sound Uh, neutral. I mean, it's one thing to be neutral on the Russia versus Ukraine question. But when Lula has said things like Zelensky and Putin deserve equal blame for their share in the war, or when Lula says that above all, what has contributed to the war is the actions of the United States and the European Union, that's not really... I mean, I don't think at least, that doesn't sound like neutral rhetoric. That sounds like Russian rhetoric. And that is certainly one reason why these comments have generated so much attention.
2: Why is that? Like, if he knows better as a politician. He ran under the slogan of peace and love. It's a little bit surprising that he, under the guise of being neutral, is cozying up to Russia.
1: Well, I, you know, you can ask yourself lots of questions about why Lula is is doing this. And I, I, I frequently joke that the best analysts of Latin American politics are not political analysts, but psychoanalysts. <laughs> the reason I say this is because executives, presidents are so strong in most of these um, forms of government that so much of it ends up coming down to kind of the feelings and whims of this one individual. And in the case of Lula, I, I've tried to understand why he has said and done these things. And, you know, I, my, my conclusion has been that, again, Lula believes that a multipolar world would be better for Brazil than the current world order. I, to me, that's a, a reasonable uh, argument. The problem is, is that he sometimes seems set on tearing down the West uh, and specifically the United States. In order for that new order to become a reality, he and his uh, the people in his government would strongly dispute that and point out that Lula made a, a trip very early in his government to the White House uh, to see President Biden uh, and that they value all of these partnerships equally. But I, I think it's also fair to say that Lula's actions and statements over the last uh, several months raised doubts about how. You know, strong relationship he wants with the United States and what kind of role he wants the U.S. to play in the world. His actions often, I mean, he takes frequent digs uh, at Washington and he has made these statements, which I, I think, you know, can be interpreted. I don't think it's anti Americanism per se. I just think they are the actions of someone who, you know, believes that a world with a less powerful United States would be a better world. And I, OK, I get it, but uh, you have to also understand that that's not going to go over well, not only in the United States, but in Europe, where you know my understanding is that some of the most uh, you know disappointed reactions have come from, not the US, but, but Europe, uh, in a way that would have been really difficult to predict prior to Lula taking office. I mean, look, there was so much goodwill, Around Lula in the capitals of Western Europe, uh, people for the most part there were happy to see the back of Bolsonaro. They really believed in Lula's you know, biography and story, and thought that he did a good time the first time around. But Lula's, you know, insistence on making, you know, inserting himself into these discussions about peace in Ukraine uh, have really cost him a lot of trust uh, in in some of those places.
2: Now, turning maybe towards the region itself, last week Lula invited Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro to Brazil after the country's cut ties some um, eight years ago. What is Lula doing here? Is this an effort to unite Latin American countries under a single block, Or does this suggest that Lula perhaps is becoming more comfortable with left-leaning dictators in the region?
1: Well, you could make an argument that Lula was always comfortable with left-leaning dictators in the region. Uh, he he had a good relationship with Hugo Chavez under circumstances that were somewhat less authoritarian 15 years ago. I mean, I think the v- Venezuela of today is, is clearly a much worse, much more authoritarian place than it was during the 2000s when Lula was first in charge, but you know, to speak to your question, I think, and th- this is a corollary of some of what we've been talking about up until now. I think it reveals Lula's worldview, which is that the most important thing is that people be on the side of the people, uh, that they be on the left, and that Lula is willing to forgive a lot, including in the Venezuelan case, a regime that imprisons and tortures its political opposition, as long as they are on the left. I think it's a worldview that prizes that, again, that, that ideology above questions of democracy. I think there are other elements here. I think, as you mentioned, that uh, South American collaboration and integration is important to the Lula government. I understand the decision that Lula made to invite Maduro to Brasilia. That, again, is something that a reasonable person could argue in favor of. Um, They share a long border. Uh, There was arguably no good in leaving Maduro out of a summit like this. So fair enough. But it's also true that Lula received Maduro with a level of pageantry and enthusiasm that surpassed that of any other foreign leader who has come to Brazil so far in his government. And so, again, to me, that raises the question of, okay, why did he do this? And to me, it it reveals this, this ideological sympathy that essentially, if he thinks that someone is on the same team ideologically, if he thinks that Maduro is on the left, then he's willing to forgive or ignore a lot of other sins.
2: I also read a piece, I believe it was also in podcast form where you interviewed the foreign minister of Brazil, and he shared a bit more about what Lula's grand strategy is. Did anything else come out of that interview that you think is worth sharing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a a philosophy of Brazilian foreign policy that has traditionally been to try to be friends with everybody, and you know, this was why if you were to rewind the tape back to say January or February, I thought at the time that there might be some role for Brazil to play on the Ukraine question. Uh, you know, Brazil is the world's sixth biggest country. Um, It has a tradition of peaceful relations with its neighbors. Lula is a figure of great historical importance, as well as a charisma that is renowned not only at home, but abroad. I thought the idea of a country stepping in of Brazil's weight and with Lula's force of personality and saying, hey, Ukraine and Russia, shouldn't we at least start to think about what Peace might look like. Uh, I thought there might be some role for that. But it was always going to be a very narrow path and a risky thing for Brazil to do for reasons that we've seen and you know i believe that unfortunately in my view when lula made some of these comments that i already alluded to particularly the one about zelensky and putin having equal responsibility for the war i think that whatever small window there was for brazil to be a meaningful mediator on this question i think that window closed and it also as i've said damaged brazil's reputation in a lot of other places around the world uh, the people in Brasilia, whom I, I uh, respect, uh, have not reached that conclusion. It's clear that Lula and his main aide, Celso Amorim, uh, continue to go down this path and uh, spend time, political capital and, you know, uh, resources traveling the world, trying to ensure that Brazil plays an important part in this question. And, and we'll see where it goes. But I, I don't have much hope right now.
2: I'm sort of shifting gears here because I also want to talk about Lula's paranoia's that you've written about that he and his allies seem to see some existential threats everywhere and then you reach an interesting conclusion which is that they're not entirely wrong. What are these threats that that he's seeing and how is that then affecting how he's leading?
1: Well, I'm reminded of the expression, you know, you're not paranoid if everybody's actually out to get you. (laughs) And let's remember that just five months ago, Brazil had its own version of the January 6 riots at the Capitol that we had here in the United States. Um, Even on the date, the Bolsonaro supporters were not that original. They did it on January 8th. And in some ways, it was worse than what happened here in the U.S. I mean, this was thousands of protesters who made their way into all three government buildings, um, the Supreme Court, the Congress and the presidential palace, trashed the place with the goal of pulling, you know, sort of forcing the military out onto the streets where these rioters believed that the military would then take their side uh, and, quote unquote, restore Bolsonaro to his rightful place that's full full air quotes by the way you know they did not come particularly close to achieving their objective but we have again similar to what we saw in the united states where we learned just how precarious some of these things were during those days there have been some revelations in brazil that show that actually you know Brazilian democracy was in some danger, not just on January 8th, but in the months immediately beforehand where uh, President Bolsonaro was talking about changing the entire electoral system uh, and making threats both publicly and behind the scenes about what he was prepared to do if, if those changes did not happen. And so, you know, if I know these things, Lula knows these things. And he understands that, for example, the military's rank and file is about 90% uh, in favor of Bolsonaro, even today. Um, In a country like Brazil, with a recent history of military intervention in politics, that matters. And so, you know, there's been a lot of questions about Lula's performance so far in his government and people asking whether he is, you know, whether he's old or whether he has decided not to listen to his advisors anymore. And I, you know, you can make cases for for many different explanations. But another explanation that I don't think gets enough attention is that Lula is at least somewhat scared that he knows um, the danger that he uh, is in with a Congress uh, and an armed forces that are working against him, ready to spring at the first sign of either illegal or unethical behavior, or even a deviation from what they see as Brazil's proper path on the economy, uh, Brazil is a country where two presidents uh, since democracy returned in 1985, two presidents have been impeached and removed from office. A couple of others face the legitimate threat of impeachment proceedings, uh, including Lula the first time around, and so there's always this. Precarious element to being a president of Brazil that I think Lula has uh, front and center, and and is the explanation for at least some of his behavior. Life is full of
0: what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me And enter code lawfare twenty at checkout that's joindeleteme slash lawfare twenty code lawfare twenty
2: There's something that I also wanted to mention, which is that in the President's palace, Lula has chosen not to repair some of the damages done by the insurrectionists, and it's in an effort to display the visual damages and remind everyone of what happened. There are similar questions that have been asked in the United States. Should we do the same with the Capitol building? And I'm just wondering to get your thoughts on this. Was that the right thing to do to keep these some of these some of the areas of the building in disrepair and remind the people of what happened that day?
1: I went inside the presidential palace back in March, and I saw this painting um, by a Brazilian artist uh, called Dica Valcanchi. That was stabbed in seven different places uh, with some sort of knife by one of the Bolsonaro protesters on January 8th. And, you know, I had read about it uh, and seen it on TV, but actually seeing it with my own eyes provoked a very strong emotional reaction. It showed to me the, frankly, the barbarism of some of the people who were there that day the total disregard that they had for Brazil's institutions and for the rule of law and you know look taking this beyond brazil a little bit widening the lens i mean this has been it's been a difficult decade for latin america as a whole uh, economies have been going sideways or down um, democracy has been backsliding in many countries and you know, for me, the the biggest challenge, I say this as someone who has been watching Latin American politics for more than 20 years, uh, who has seen these countries enjoy periods of success, uh, real success, talking mainly about the 2000s with the growth of the middle class and democracies that were moving in the other direction that were getting better. I know that progress is possible. I've seen it. And when it happens, it's usually because institutions and the rule of law are strong. And so to me, anything that leaves a permanent monument, a permanent record of uh, that day uh, and that shows us in an emotional way uh, the cost of when these authoritarian groups move in trying to use, you know, Vandalism uh, and violence as a way to impose their will after having lost an election, I think anything that can remind us of that and and touch people in a different way i think is is I think it's worthwhile to to leave that behind
2: so let's turn to the final point that you made, and uh, hopefully this is a bit more of a positive note, which is Lula and his efforts with the Amazon and tackling deforestation. It seems like he's going full steam ahead. Can you give us a sense of where that project is, what his goals have been so far and, and what he's done?
1: Well, there's no doubt that Lula is better on environmental issues than Bolsonaro was. I mean, Bolsonaro's coalition included illegal agribusiness interests that wanted carte blanche to go into the Amazon uh, slash and burn and create cattle ranches and do illegal mining and engage in all kinds of other activities. Lula has a a different view, a view that is more uh, constructive, uh, more in line with sort of the, the global consensus on this issue. Uh, and there's been some uh, progress on this, including falling rates of deforestation but it's not you know it's not so black and white first of all because it's not just about lula on this question he can believe that deforestation is bad uh but stopping deforestation in brazil is very complicated in part because forgive me if this seems obvious the amazon is big i mean it is gigantic and exerting the rule of law again and Uh, Effective control over that area is exceptionally difficult. More to the point, people in these regions that have seen the most deforestation over the last five to six years generally agreed with Bolsonaro. And we know this because uh, in the 2022 election, the parts of the country that most enthusiastically voted for Bolsonaro were the parts of Brazil that saw the most deforestation, which is to say, people there agreed. With Bolsonaro's view that essentially cutting down the forest leads to progress. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why, over the last 50 years of Brazilian history, that has been proven wrong again and again. We've repeatedly seen that progress does not come to deforested areas. Or, more to the point, whatever revenue comes from cattle ranching and soy farming tends to just fall into the pockets of a very few people, uh, generally speaking. But again, we're making this is a political question. Uh, People were seduced by Bolsonaro's argument. So back to the question of of now what happens with Lula you know unless he can get political buy-in and cooperation from the people in these regions it's going to be very difficult for him to turn this story around it's important to point out that during Lula's first presidency from 2003 to 2010 people believed that Amazon deforestation was an intractable problem under Lula's first government, deforestation rates fell by 70%. He proved the first time around that there is a way to push these numbers in the other direction that involves, you know, everything from increasing the number of police uh, and environmental inspectors in these areas to the use of satellite technology uh, and other techniques as well. But, you know, the bottom line is it's going to be hard for history to repeat itself because the political circumstances in Brazil have changed uh, there's not the economy is not booming like it was during uh, Lula's first term, and so he doesn't have these vast amounts of resources that he can pour into things like law and environmental enforcement so i i I am you know, somewhat hopeful and the early returns are have been encouraging, but there is a long way to go to get this really headed back in the positive direction that it was in Brazil uh, over a long period of time.
2: Before we wrap up, I'm also curious if you can share with us your predictions for U.S.-Brazil relations. You mentioned quite a bit about Brazil's tactics right now and how it's trying to have greater influence in the world, and sometimes even sidelining the United States or reprimanding the United States globally. But we do share a shared interest with Brazil in that we're both, both countries are trying to protect democracy and have those shared values. Will that be enough to safeguard the US-Brazil relations? Or do you anticipate perhaps that Brazil's efforts to ally with Russia and China more intimately to prioritize perhaps his socialist views over democracy will cause maybe U.S. Brazil relations to fray even more.
1: Look, I think Lula and Joe Biden have a lot in common, an eerie amount of things in common. Uh, they both won uh, in you know fair elections that uh, were protested by the losers. Uh, They faced similar, I think, threats to democracy in Jair Bolsonaro and Donald Trump, who were openly sharing ideas with each other and kind of working from the same playbook. And we saw this when Lula came to the White House back in February. I mean, there, there, by all accounts, was a genuine connection on this issue of having survived a major challenge to Democracy and come out successfully on the other side. Uh, to your point, there will always be shared interests between Brazil and the US on issues like climate uh, and, and so on. But I would say that, you know, these things that Lula has done and said over the last several months have taken their toll uh, in European capitals as well as in Washington. Uh, they have shown a Government that is less committed to democracy, uh, at least outside its borders. Uh, I, I don't question Lula's commitment to democracy inside of Brazil. I do fundamentally question his commitment to democracy outside of Brazil. And I think that's been a disappointment. Lula did more than welcome Nicolas Maduro. He threw out the red carpet and he said that the only real problem that Venezuela faced was a narrative of authoritarianism, uh, which is clearly not the case. I mean, this is a, a dictatorship that has been imprisoning and torturing its uh, opponents for many years. That's not a narrative, that's a reality. As the Chilean president, also on the left, Gabriel Boric, rightly Pointed out, so these all these things have had their cost in Washington, um, not just in the Biden administration, but you know there's a, a a community of people actually in both the Democratic and Republican parties who have always doubted uh, Brazil's constructive role in the world and and Lula's that of work, Lula's Workers Party as well, and I, I think the last couple of months have have given ammunition to that crowd. So I, I expect a relationship that will continue to be constructive and cordial, but perhaps not as close as some people would have liked.
2: And I would assume that the United States has to tread lightly in this department because we also don't want to totally, this is not what you're suggesting, but but we don't want to totally sideline Brazil. It's an important partner, just as India is, in thinking about responding to Russia and China and their growing influence in the world?
1: I think that there is a certain humility that has characterized the uh, Biden foreign policy, including their foreign policy towards Latin America, and a recognition that the U.S. cannot and should not try to throw its weight around uh, in the way that previous governments have tried to do. I mean, look, it's 2023, not 1983, which means in practice that the U.S. has to uh, be understanding and, and can't try to bully other countries around the world into accepting their view. At the same time, uh, the Biden government has clear values. And that's I think that's where the disappointment has been in seeing that, you know, in the specific case of uh, Venezuela, as well as Russia, that, you know, the the... The world that Lula would like to see has led him to cover his eyes and effectively not see, not prioritize democracy in the way that uh, certainly people in Washington would like him to do.
2: So, Brian, let's also turn to uh, a point that you made earlier about some of the polarization how does that look like in Brazil right now? And seeing as a lot of institutions are in opposition of Lula, what is he doing to either rein them in or perhaps uh, convince them that he is a good leader and that they can trust him?
1: Well, there have been so many strange parallels between Brazil and the United States over the last six years or so. Um, And one of them is just you know not only the similarities between uh, Jair bolsonaro and Donald Trump uh, and so many of the you know people from both sides who were talking to each other uh Steve Bannon notoriously you know had a lot of interest very close ties with the bolsonaro family uh, but another common thing has been this degree of polarization it, it has at times looked like almost a 50 50 country in the same way the us did and the election of 2022 was a fifty one forty nine Election. It was the closest election uh, in Brazil since democracy returned in the 1980s. But you know, there's there's another story here, which is that Bolsonaro's rise reflected changes in Brazilian society over the last, really, the last 20 years. And the most obvious one is that Brazil has gone from being a mostly Catholic country for all of its modern history. To something else, where uh, you know, back in the nineteen eighties, evangelical Christians accounted for about seven percent of Brazil's population. Today, it's estimated to be about a third, um, and some people say that the evangelicals could become the majority as soon as the thirties. Um, that is a huge transformation of a country in the span of really. Uh, one lifetime, and it has resulted in the rise of a new kind of politics uh, that is more socially conservative, in which you hear about some of these issues like, you know, questions over uh, gender, uh, LGBT questions. Uh, and so on, uh, that were' just not on really on the radar of Brazilian politics as recently as ten or fifteen years ago. So that is now the Brazil that Lula is trying to govern. And I think it's an open question as to whether he understands just how much the country has changed uh, over the last twenty years since he was president the first time. He has tried to have some dialogue with evangelical pastors recognizing that you know what happens on Sunday and what's said inside of churches ends up really influencing the way that a lot of Brazilians feel about their politics but he has struggled somewhat because you know even though Lula uh, is a religious person um, he is Catholic uh, so was bolsonaro by the way uh, but uh, bolsonaro I guess you could say despite uh, being Catholic was able to really win over the evangelical community. And it's not clear yet whether Lula is really able to speak their language. The only other thing I'd add is that it did feel to me when I was back there in Brazil earlier this year, that kind of running parallel to this polarization was a hunger for normalcy. Brazil under normal circumstances, and the Brazil that I first got to know 25 years ago, uh, it's not usually a political place. There are other countries in Latin America, and I always think of Argentina, where if you turn on the television at nine o'clock at night, most channels are going to be showing current affairs shows and people arguing with each other about politics. In Brazil, you turn on the TV that time of night, and you're usually going to see telenovelas and soccer matches. I'm exaggerating a bit, but there's an element of truth to that. And I heard from a lot of people, you know. Once the election had passed, I heard several Brazilian friends and kind of random people who I came into contact with saying, "Yeah, I'm really tired of politics, and I just, I, you know, just let Lula kind of do his thing." And some of the polling backs that up. I mean, it may only be at least for now only 25 to 30% of Brazilians in polls are saying that they like really strongly oppose the Lula government so far. A lot of others are are on the fence. There's about another third of society that says that they're neither in favor nor against what Lula's doing. So we'll see if out of that climate Lula is able to kind of get Uh, The country, not only economically back on track, but politically back to kind of where it's usually been, which is a country where, you know, people would rather focus on other things.
2: One thing I want to tease out in drawing the parallel between Brazil and the United States and talking about the increase of evangelical Christians in the country, I noticed that you didn't say anything about race. And I'm wondering if in Brazil, there's a similar strand as there is in the United States of this resurgence of white supremacy or something close to that and a racial divide when it comes to politics as well
1: look race is a complicated subject in brazil as it is everywhere and i, I always try to be very humble talking about this question as as an american where we have our certainly our our own hierarchy of our own history and our own way of looking at this i would say that there are some similarities in brazil to the you know, the increased role of race in the public debate and in politics in recent years, a re-examination of our history. Uh, You know, blacks in the United States account for approximately 12% of the population. In Brazil, people who identify as either black or a mixed race account for 52% of the population. So it's you know it's a very it's obviously a very different equation there. You will still find Brazilians who insist to Americans and as well as to other Brazilians that Brazil does not have a racial problem that discrimination in Brazil has historically happened because of class not because of race. That there was never legalized segregation in Brazil, for example, in the way that there was in the United States. What I can tell you is that there has been, I think it's fair to say, an increased black consciousness in both social questions and political questions in Brazil in recent years where people are really pushing back against that idea and saying, no, there is absolutely racism present in Brazil's um, society and its economy and its politics. And there's, you know, some politicians are speaking about that more openly than others. And I I think it's still very much a debate that's that's underway.
2: Brian Winter, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work as well at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag.